the host of Business of Betting podcast. I'm joined today by Lloyd Danzig. He has an extensive collection of different jobs on LinkedIn, so I will have you uh, have him introduce himself in a few minutes. But he is an investor in sports betting uh, in the exchanges, amongst other things, has lots of opinions on the industry. He's been a sports better for a long time, uh, has some really interesting perspective and uh, interesting thought in the industry, and I'm looking forward to getting into it. So welcome to the podcast, Lloyd. Jason, thanks a lot uh, for having me. I have to say, I think myself, along with most industry participants, we're not sure if anyone would be able to fill the shoes uh, left by Jake Williams, uh, your predecessor. But man, have you done an amazing job, brought on amazing guests, had fantastic conversations. This podcast is such an asset uh, for anyone entering into or, or trying to learn more about the industry. So very much appreciate all that you're doing. I appreciate that. Every time I do an episode, though, I, I give more respect to Jake. It's just so much work putting in a, a good podcast. And he did, I mean, he did 170, uh, I mean, 160 episodes, which is it's crazy. It's crazy. So much work. And he's, he, he, he should be very proud of the content he built. Yeah. And it's, it's not like you don't have uh, anything else going on uh, with, with, with yeah. Smarkets. Uh, uh, a CEO uh, of, a, of a growth stage company is more than a full-time job for most people. So uh, impressive that you're managing to get any of these podcasts out, even relatively on time. I appreciate that. I um, the reason I do it is I believe you know I I don't find there's not that many places to actually talk about the business of betting, and I think it's super interesting. Most betting most betting podcasts and content talk about tips and things like that, but I think it's a cool for, it's cool for people place for people to come to understand the industry and talk about the ideas. So why don't you introduce yourself? Because I know you've worn many hats in the past, um, and and I think as an investor and a, and a better yourself, you still wear many hats. Like how would you introduce yourself to the business of betting audience? Yeah, so I appreciate that. First and foremost, I run a venture capital fund, Sharp Alpha Advisors. We specialize in sports betting, uh, real money gaming. Uh, I sit on the board and or as a strategic advisor for many different companies in the space, most of which are, are our portfolio companies. Uh, so for the most part, that long list of jobs on my LinkedIn profile are the portfolio companies in which uh, we as a fund are investors. I've done some angel investing, some strategic sweat equity advising pri prior to and outside of the fund a bit, but uh, really by far the best and most easy way to think of me is as a venture capitalist investing in the next generation of sports betting and real money gaming platforms. Are you able to share the fund size and, and which fund you're on and, and those details? So we publicly announced the closing of our first fund. Uh, of $10 million in October of 2021. We have since increased uh, our assets under management quite significantly and have not made any new announcements just yet about current AUM or future funds or anything of the like. But the publicly available information right now will tell you that we closed a $10 million fund focused on pre-seed, seed, and Series A uh, in October of, of 2021. Uh, and some more sleuthing and digging will reveal that Additional activities have gone on since, but have not yet been discussed publicly in detail. Okay, and of the 10, how much is dry? Uh, about, we still have about 60% uh, of the of dry powder remaining. Uh, we, we do a lot of fundraising through SPVs. Uh, and so 
it may be a bit hard for someone digging in to square up all of the math because you can you can find us having allocated uh, quite a bit more than I suppose three and a half four million dollars. Uh, and the reason for that is other sort of parallel vehicles, AIVs, SPVs, and things of that nature. But we still have about 60, 65% dry powder in, in, the, uh, in the first fund and are actively investing into new deals. Yeah, and for those of you not familiar with VC Lingo, SPV is Special Purpose Vehicle, which is basically a side fund. And I, I actually didn't know the other acronym. You said I something? What is it? Uh, AIV is an alternative uh, investment vehicle, similar, but okay. slightly different. Okay, different different set of accountants. Basically. Um, cool. So, is your is this fund is the thesis um, in the business uh, the the target investment? Is it all in sports betting, or is it across various industries? Uh, so, for the most part, it, it is all in sports betting and, and real money gaming. The umbrella term that I use to describe the class of products, platforms, services that we invest in is competitive entertainment, which is a term I coined and I'm trying to make uh, more popular. And I use it to refer to any form of entertainment where winning or outcomes are what matter and are the source of the utility derived by the user. And so that's watching sports, betting on sports, playing video games, betting on video games, Peloton races, Peloton races for money, whatever it is, you, you name it. Uh, and this is an area in which I foresee a significant amount of convergence and consolidation, both enabled by technology over the next five to 10 years, as we're already starting to see with entrants like Fanatics and uh, potentially FTX into the space. Uh, Vivid Seats, a StubHub competitor, bought one of my portfolio companies, Betcha, uh, and is now operating both a ticketing and sports betting business. So, uh, yeah, sports betting is absolutely core to our thesis, and the overturning of PASPA very much was the catalyst for the investment opportunities that we see and pursue. But as VC investors, we're investing with a, a five, 10 plus year time horizon. And so when we look further into the future, I think competitive entertainment is the best term I could use to sum up the types of deals that we'll look at and, and products that we'll underwrite. I like I like that the 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 term uh, the term has buzz to it. I, I like the the term, but can you link to me uh, intellectually a Peloton competition with a sports bet? How would you link those two? Um, I, I guess it depends what you mean by by link. The way I see it is that there are all of these psychographically similar activities where when you're in a type of person who's in the mindset to pursue one activity is highly likely to want to pursue the other activity. If you place a bet, you are much more likely than the average person to want to buy a ticket to that game or buy a jersey of, of that player. In general, if you're wagering real money over the internet on sports, you are more likely than the average person to want to wager real money over the internet on a casino or on other types of uh, activities, uh, video games, for example, I'm invested in, in a company that allows you to play against your friends, strangers, and now the house in your favorite AAA video games uh, for money, Madden, FIFA, 2K, Call of Duty, uh, and, and things like that. And so it's hard to say whether a true super app that offers every type of gambling and gaming under the sun, as well as adjacent activities will ever come to fruition. But I certainly think DraftKings now having their NFT marketplace and NFL Rainmakers, Fanatics adding a sports betting to a ticketing merchandise and collectibles company. Uh, these are some of the early instances that we're seeing of 
attempts to cross-sell and cross-pollinate users across these, again, very psychologically similar types of activities, where if you're already engaged in one, it's a relatively low lift to get you engaged in the others. Got it. And uh, for in your investment strategy, how much are you taking the picks and shovels approach versus the operator approach? Definitely have a, a great affinity for, for picks and shovels. Uh, people hear that phrase a lot. The, where it comes from is the, the idea that during a gold rush, the best way to make money is by selling picks and shovels rather than mining for gold yourself because everyone needs to buy a pick and a shovel. However, although it is the case that there will be a low frequency of gold miners who strike it rich, the ones who succeed will almost certainly have larger outcomes than the pick and shovels sellers. It's just that there will be fewer of them. I think that's a perfect analogy here where the largest outcomes almost undoubtedly will come from B2C operators because those are the companies that own the high LTV, high lifetime value end user. Uh, those are, are the ones that are able to produce outsized outcomes. In effect, B2B companies almost by definition are limited to a percentage of B2C revenues. Otherwise, where would they possibly earn their, their revenues from unless they're servicing other industries? And so I think in general, it probably is the case that for the most part, B2B businesses may offer the best risk adjusted return. But oftentimes it is the B2C operators that provide the greatest absolute upside. And so we like to invest in both generally avoid companies that are directly competing with DraftKings and FanDuel for market share, because that is quite challenging to do. Uh, but as mentioned, uh, we're invested in, in one of the primary Betfair style exchanges, which is now live in New Jersey. Uh, Profit uh, have been involved in several of their financing rounds uh, and I'm involved in a number of other niche audience specific B2C plays, as well as alternative platforms. For example, I mentioned a company called Players Lounge, where you can play against your friends or strangers or now the house. They will make you odds. You play Call of Duty, they will say, I will give Jason plus 200 odds that he can't kill over seven people in this match or match you up with someone to play a $100 game of Madden against. And so, uh, again, have a deep affinity to the picks and shovels. Think that probably a lot of the best risk-adjusted returns do come from that space. But I also think that the greatest outcomes in an absolute dollar sense will come from b2c operators and so you know we, we try to do a bit of both so so yeah one of your portfolio companies is profit is that correct correct so exchanges are obviously near and dear to my heart what's your what's your how do you see the market uh like how, what do you think the role for exchanges are in the american market it's fascinating topic i like you come from a financial services background and so at the at the base level the intellectual appeal of an exchange that uses a limit order book to process sports bets is incredibly appealing and intuitive and seems to make a lot more sense uh, even than you know the fixed odds model in, in, in the way that that operates. I think that we're still very early in, in the U.S. markets relationship with exchanges. Uh, exchanges require a bit more sophistication from the sports better than a standard fixed odds model. And they also tend to attract more of a value seeker, a, a high volume, lower margin uh, type customer. Uh, people who want instant gratification, who want to bet 100,000, 10,000 to one in game, single game parlays or, or so-called micro markets, micro bets, 
they tend, at least in today's market, to be a bit different from the audience that seeks out an exchange. But, and I forgot which of your guests, I think, made this point quite astutely, uh, there is still a lot of room for the U.S. customer to grow in its sophistication and value-seeking as relates to sports betting. Right now, even though, of course, there's been a very robust gray market for a long time, legal fixed-odd sports betting is very new and novel. There's not a ton of price sensitivity. I think your average recreational customer is looking for a 100%, 500%, 1,000% return in one day. And so telling them that they can use this other platform that'll add two or three percentage points to their ROI is not as appealing as it is to a longer term, more sophisticated better who understands how that impacts uh, your, your bankroll over time. Of course, we already have seen a lot of issues with players getting banned and players getting limited. And, and the exchange, I think, is a really nice home uh, for a lot of those players. But I mean, first and foremost, one of my viewpoints is that as the U.S. sports betting market, as the U.S. sports better gets more sophisticated and understands why value is even important in sports betting in the first place, the appeal of the exchange will, will rise dramatically. The other significant challenge, of course, uh, is, is liquidity. Uh, the Wire Act prevents sharing liquidity across state lines. Profit and sport trade both are live only in New Jersey uh, right now and have to do this one state at a time. And much like poker, a lack of liquidity not only makes the economic model challenging, it compromises the user experience. If someone finally convinces you to try this new thing called an exchange and you go on, but you don't get your order filled, you don't get your order matched, uh, there's a pretty low chance that you'll then go and try again uh, the next day. So liquidity is is very important, and I think it remains to be seen. Uh, it's certainly something we can discuss. Will they repeal the, the Wire Act? Will we enter into some sort of multi-state liquidity sharing agreement, as we saw in poker? Will uh, regulators be amenable to creative structures where a market maker places a server at a casino or in a specific state, even though their chief place of business is outside of that state, and allow that to satisfy Wire Act criteria? So I think we're still in in the early days, uh, and I think liquidity constraints are, are significant. Uh, but undoubtedly, I, I think there's a great opportunity here. The last piece of research I saw from Eilers and Kredzik was expecting 4 to 8% of GGR uh, to come from exchanges at the mature state of the market. I, I do think that makes sense to me as a relatively lower bound. Uh, but I also think there's an opportunity to see a greater share of GGR produced by exchanges, depending on how innovative they can be, how intuitive the user interfaces can be, and so on. Yeah, I was going to ask, is your vision more that exchanges should become more mainstream or that they will be big niches as they are in the UK? I, I mean, that, that 4 to 8% number I hadn't heard, it doesn't sound crazy to me. Um, it sounds quite reasonable, actually. But uh, I always estimated the market share in the UK was like 10 to 15% exchanges. And it's kind of been at that for 10, 15 years. It's, it's, it's maintained that level. So do you see the market maturing to like the UK where exchanges are capped at 10%? Uh, market share, or do you see a world that uh, exchanges could grow into mass market products? So, tip, you you probably are closer to this data than I am. Typically, what the data that I hear is that in the UK market, ten percent of handle comes from is attributable to exchanges, but not ten percent of revenue because exchanges have lower margins than sports books. And whether it's actually ten or not, I'm sure that is the case that exchanges make up a larger share of handle than GGR in the UK just because of, of the margins. My, my thoughts are that I think the UK scenario 
is sort of the base case or, or, or even the bear case for exchanges in the U.S. At the very least, they serve a functional purpose. They can absorb the high volume, low margin action. They can be a home for for sharps who have been banned and limited. They can be a home for more institutional style players. Nevada is a state that already allows what is called entity wagering, where an LLC or corporation can place a bet. New Jersey is rumored to be considering it, other states potentially as well. And so I think at the very least, you will see the U.S. equal the percentage of handle or GGR share that is seen in the U.K. I think the opportunity to improve beyond that is mostly a matter of, of UI UX development uh, and coming up with new ideas and ways. And, you know, I am an investor in, in profit and their closest competitor these days is, is sport trade. But Alex Kane at sport trade is someone I consider a, a close friend and a fantastic innovator and entrepreneur. Uh, and if you look at profit, they are really a, a Betfair style exchange. They have, I think, a, a bit more of an intuitive user interface uh, that is is more accessible than, than Betfair today, but very much similar sort of structurally isomorphic. Sport Trade took a different spin on it. They really brought in more of a Robin Hood type UI UX. All of their, they don't have minus 150 and plus 360 or spreads. All of their trades resolve to a $0 or $100 outcome. And so they have pulled from sort of the predict it and Robin Hood model and, and merged them uh, to some extent. And if you look and play around on their product, it looks more like Robin Hood than it does any type of, of sports book. And so I think that the base case, if you just import the Betfair model and make some UI UX improvements is to essentially match what we see in the UK. But with UI UX improvements on top of that, I do think there is an opportunity to, to go beyond and to take uh, to take a larger share, especially if you can offer better pricing along the way. So you said earlier that you uh, don't like to invest in direct competitors to fame dual DraftKings. Is that because you think it's the mountains too high and they have too much money to spend on marketing? Do you think they're that entrenched in market share or what, is, what what's your reason for that hypothesis to not go up against FanDuel DraftKings? And to clarify that that first, you know, I am considering the profits and sport trades of the world to be different enough that I don't see them as directly competing for market share. Obviously, in a sense, they are. They get the same licenses and the yeah. same market access and are pulling for the same share of wallet. Uh, what I more am referring to and, and see a lot of opportunities all the time are investing in the companies that are, you know, the number 19 or 20 ranked fixed odds sports book in New Jersey or attempting to be so. And the reasons why I yeah. find that difficult are, are for the exact ones that, that you described. The mountain is so yeah. high to climb. The economies of scale in this industry are so significant. It is so difficult to compete with the bonusing and promotions uh, that the big sports books will offer. Uh, as sports books get larger and operate in multiple jurisdictions, they end up switching from a state by state marketing plan to a nationwide marketing plan that ends up being a lot more efficient, not to mention how they can negotiate with their vendors and things of that nature. And so, look, I do think you might see a, an outsized return from a, a points bet or a, a Rush Street Interactive uh, or, or a brand like that. But I do think it will be quite difficult. And we already saw Fubo Sportsbook officially threw in the towel yesterday, I think. Uh, I expect more companies to, to close up shop that are in, again, you know, the, the 15th to 20th ranked 
uh, by market share B2C fixed odds operators in New Jersey. Those are, are, are the ones that I think, you know, are, are, are quite difficult. Uh, I will say, uh, you know, uh, the, the spinoff from Simple Bet, Better, uh, they raised quite a bit of money at, at, a, at an impressive valuation and brought Jake Paul on to do the media thing. And, uh, you know, will we'll significantly lower their cost of customer acquisition because of that and have secured market access by granting equity rather than paying cash. And they're doing a lot of really innovative things. And, and maybe they will will make a run at it. Maybe underdog fantasy will you know find an interesting way as well. But for the most part, it is just too capital intensive, especially for a small fund uh, to, to back a company that is directly going to be competing with DraftKings and FanDuel for customers, for licenses and ultimately for market share. The way I see the market evolving, which is completely different from most people, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it. I, I see over time, who knows if it's years, it could be decades, I guess, but it could be years, it could be months, who knows. But I see the margin getting uh, compressed by competitive forces over time. I, I just saw a print in New Jersey, I think they did 90, 900 million handle in the the margin of the operators was 11%. And this is in a world where most of these operators are not turning a profit. So to me, it's insane that A, the margin is as high as 11%, and B, nobody's making money at these 11% um, margins, uh, which is, t like I said, to me, is crazy. Uh, my thinking is that over time, margins are going to get compressed. And you're going to have to have, whether or not you show it as an interface, you're going to have to have an exchange underneath the hood in order to be able to price things with a high frequency, low margin, because the sportsbook model of a guy with a sandwich in front of a computer watching a baseball game is not going to scale to, it's not going to scale and it's not going to be fast enough and the margin is not going to be tight enough. Do you, when you hear that point of view, do you, agree with that? Or do you think that's not the way the industry is going to shake out? So let me separate that into two parts. One part is belief that margins will decrease over time. Other part, which I think is a fascinating topic, is that fixed odd sports books will actually just be full blown or at least partially exchanges under the hood. To that second point first, uh, that idea appeals to me greatly. There are a few different companies out there now, either that have their origins as quantitative analysis driven betting syndicates or otherwise that are trying to offer sports books pricing feeds with the added bonus that the provider of the pricing feed stands ready to take a bet at that price or to allow the sports book to offload risk at that price up to a pretty significant threshold. First of all, I think that is an awesome business model from the perspective that you're actually putting your money where your mouth is. You're not just sending out some XML or JSON feed saying, we think this is what the price should be. You're saying, we think this is what you should set the price at. And if you don't believe us or you want to test that, you know, we'll take $10 million worth of liability at that price on either side of the market. Uh, there are some regulatory and technological challenges to actually making that a, a mass market product. But the people who are working on it are, are brilliant and, ha and have been doing things like this for, for quite some time. And I think we'll find a way to make that an enterprise offering. And so whether it actually is the case that there is a limit order book underlying a fixed odds operator or not, I think at the very least, you will see a sort of programmatic ability for a sports book to instantaneously offload risk in such a way that essentially makes them some sort of exchange or matching engine on, under the hood. The first question is, is really interesting. Uh, presumably, or if you just look at sort of natural market forces or how industries evolve over time, it would seem that, that margins should 
compress. Uh, I think that the two counterpoints to that are one that if you expect a lot of consolidation and you expect there to be fewer B2C players in the market tomorrow than there are today, in theory, that would cause less pressure on margin compression. And then I think the biggest confounding variable is the onslaught of same game parlays and micro betting and whatnot. I do think that on average, the margin on a Monday night football money line bet or spread bet will decrease. But I think the share of wagers that are placed in the form of same game parlays, bets on micro markets, all of these ultra high margin products where you're seeing 20% plus margins, that is going to likely represent a larger share of handle tomorrow than it does today. And so I think there's a few different things in tension and some confounding variables. But the thing I, I am at least willing to, to say I, I do agree with is that I think the margin on any given bet is likely to decrease over time. But I do think that the mix of bets is going to favor or skew more heavily to high margin bets over time. And so it's hard to say how that will impact the industry-wide margin. Uh, although, again, I, I do very much agree with you on like a bet specific on a you know, NFL money line or spread bet that, that those margins should go down. But don't you think that uh, the the bet builders and the intra game intra game parlays will compress as well? I mean, if something if somebody's offering this margin for twenty five percent and there's an operator that offers the same bet for eight percent margin, don't you think there's going to be capitalistic pressure to to, I mean that's our I mean that's our hypothesis is that price will be, be driving a lot of consumer behavior and these high margin things there's nothing stopping any operator from lowering the margin on these on these on these bets besides uh, you know their business model and their fixed cost needs and, and all that kind of stuff but you know anybody can have low margin betting so you know don't you think one of these 20 or new new entrants will come along and and start really putting pressure on the, the existing model? So this is a, a really interesting analytical data science economics question. I don't know if in the next five years, let's say, anyone will be able to offer bets on will Aaron judge, you know, what will the outcome of his next at bat be? Or will the next play be a runner or pass? I, I don't know if operators will be able to offer bets like that at a one or 2% over round. Uh, the potential for information asymmetry and adverse selection, as, as you've referred to many times, the potential to have significantly unbalanced action on a particular market, uh, the lack of true confidence in the pricing in the first place. I am tempted to believe that, especially for, for micro markets and then also for same game parlays where the margin compounds, I don't know that you'll see something like a one to two percent uh, margin or, or over round on those on those type of bets. If you were to, then yes, I, I would I would agree if someone really figures out the pricing uh, in a way that they can be so confident that either a over the long run, they will be maximizing expected value in a, a profitable way or, or B, they have a way to you know, balance their action and do risk management in real time. It's possible. But I have a sense that that micro bets and, you know, 12 leg same game parlays are are not going to have one uh, to two percent margins anytime soon. And so what I would argue is that even if 
the same game parlay margin goes from 25% down to 12%, but the amount of handle that those bets represent increases by 3x, that would shift the overall margin up uh, if it currently is at, let's say, 10 to 11% or, or, or whatever it is. So really, I think it comes down to how confident can any given operator be in, in their pricing? Here we are in 2022, four, five years post-PASPA, and really DraftKings, powered by a third party, SimpleBet is the only one truly offering micro markets, which seems to speak to the difficulty of the data aggregation, cleansing and processing problem, plus a bit of the uh, uh, of the challenges on the data science side. So uh, we will see. I definitely think your argument makes perfect sense uh, intuitively and theoretically when you study any market that has ever existed or, or any industry. But if you think about how long this industry has spent not even accepting correlated parlays because people were unable to price them properly, not even letting you bet on a really big favorite and the over to both occur in the same game, it seems to suggest it may take longer than expected, even though that disappoints the inner uh, data scientist in me that that is the case. It may take longer than expected to see one to 2% margins on same game parlays or, or, or micro markets. Yeah. So, what, I mean, where do you see if you, if, if you are prognosticating sports betting in 10 years, do you, it's, are FanDuel and DraftKings still there? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think the platforms and the user bases are still there. Is it possible that DraftKings is called ESPN bet at that point? Uh, perhaps. Uh, is it possible that there is, you know, all sorts of other business mashups that lead to a different brand name and, and logo on the consumer facing side that 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 is certainly possible currently the market share that is aggregated among DraftKings FanDuel BetMGM and Caesars is you know 80 to 90 percent depending on how and, and and when you measure it uh, I think that we will see a lot of consolidation at the corporate or parent company level uh, but that a lot of operators will likely operate multi-brand strategies maybe a separate brand for the Spanish-speaking audience or a separate brand for the uh, eSports audience or a separate brand for, you know, the European audience, whatever it is. In, in Europe, of course, we've already seen, you know, the, the multi-brand strategy by uh, GVC now, now in Tain, just as, as one of, of many examples. Um, what I think you will absolutely see in 10 years is a lot more brands that historically have not been considered endemic or native to the sports betting space at least having taken a crack at entering it. Uh, Fanatics and FTX are, are, are two, two prime examples there. And somewhat conversely, we will also see sports betting companies add on all sorts of non-endemic, non-native user flows and, and revenue streams. And really hard to, to fast forward 10 full years and, and imagine how that all plays out. But I do think that the space will be quite different uh, 10 years from now than, than it is today on, on a variety of dimensions. Yeah, d it totally makes sense. Awesome. What do you think about sportsbooks uh, limiting winning players? What's your take on that? Um, it's uh, it's 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 a ethical, tough, and, non-ethical, complicated topic. So I think that first of all, a sportsbook posting site-wide limits, I have no problem with. If they want to say that this specific bet is a bet they will only take up to a hundred dollars or five hundred dollars from all customers. To me, that is non-controversial. I have no problem with that at all. I honestly don't even think I have a problem with 
transparent user-specific stake factoring, as it is typically called by, by risk managers, where you profile your users and certain users have a limit on all or some bets that is 1% or 5% or 10% of what the base rate would be. As long as that is advertised to the user upfront when they log on, when they're looking at the pricing. The thing that I find most problematic by far is what effectively is a, a bait and switch where an operator posts a price, a better goes in to make a bet at that price, and that bet is rejected and then the odds are moved. Because essentially in that case, the operator enticed someone to take an action on their platform from which they, the operator, are deriving valuable information. But the only reason that that person took that action was for the promise of the ability to place a bet that they are then being deprived of once the operator has already gleaned the information they are looking for. And so I think that specifically is the practice that I have the most difficulty getting my arms around. I think it is the one that sharp bettors find the most deeply infuriating and insulting because the books, you know, go out and in their press releases and their investor summaries, they talk about how their models are amazing and they're great at pricing or their supplier is great at pricing, that there's no new information they could possibly incorporate into their models that would make them more accurate. But that is belied by the very action of limiting or banning or, or rejecting a, a bet from a sharp and moving the price, because of course you are then incorporating that information into your model. And so that is the specific practice that that I, I really, really dislike and would prefer at least be migrated to a transparent stake factoring whereby a user logs on and when they're viewing any given market, they can see what their limit is before attempting to place the bet. Yeah, totally makes sense. Well, in your seat uh, as an investor, I'm sure you see lots of pitches, and you know, as an investor, you have to say no a lot. But you, you, you know, the nice thing about being an investor is you get to see what a lot of the market is trying to do. What are what are one or two things that you're really excited about in sports betting over the next couple of years? Yeah, uh, that definitely is you know the the privilege uh, of, of being investors, getting to see what really smart, passionate people uh, are are building. Um, I am excited uh, to see how personalization uh, and recommendation engines change the shape of our industry. I know in some previous episodes you've expressed skepticism over just how accurate and high fidelity a bet recommendation can be, but I have this view of the future where your smart alarm clock will use a bunch of data to figure out when to wake you up. Uh, your smart refrigerator will tell you exactly what to eat. Your smart closet will look at the weather and your schedule and the RFID tags and all your clean clothes and recommend you what to wear. And then your smart sports book or online casino app will serve you the exact betting opportunity that you want the moment you open the app, perhaps even to a degree where a user never has to search or navigate uh, a sports book or casino app again. We'll, we'll see if we actually get to that point. But I do can, think can you float on a skateboard as well? <laughs> not not quite yet, but uh, me and the doc are, yeah, but, are working on that but, for sure. But in Go your ahead, RFID please. world of uh, in, in in this fantasy world, like screw the uh, the betting recommendation, you might as well just have a robo advisor that's betting for you. Like like skip that yeah. step and just have your uh, your Charles Schwab guy is placing the bets on your behalf. First of all, I think there 
are a ton of people uh, who find the actual process of placing a bet very fatiguing and anxiety provoking and would love to be served a set of things to root. Hey, root for this tonight. And if it happens, you'll win. I actually think there are a lot of people who, who, would, who would really enjoy that. And then there's another subset of people who want to feel like they did a bunch of really rigorous analytical research to decide what to bet on without actually having done any such uh, research. Uh, I think it actually is probably almost a minority uh, of sports bettors. Uh, if you look at the entire population and think about mass market adoption, if you probably are in the minority, uh, and I certainly am in this minority, if you truly enjoy doing the research and whether it's building a model or reading the power rankings and, and entering all your bets. But I, I think for a lot of people, that is actually a very intimidating, anxiety provoking and, and fatiguing uh, activity. And I would absolutely uh, you know, wager that there will be a lot more robo-advising or automated bet slip generation uh, that occurs in the future for the people who just want a little extra adrenaline rush or just want something to root for. Uh, and the beauty, by the way, is that there's also a bit of ego uh, involved. You don't want to put your money on something and then be wrong because it shows that you're stupid or uninformed or something like that. But if you can simply blame the random number generator or the Charles Schwab powered <laughs> robo advisor, uh, it, it, it's a bit easy. Uh, and that, of course, speaks to this interesting you know, aspect of human nature, whereby most people, when they place a bet and they win, it's because they're a genius. And when they place a bet and lose, it's because the ref made a bad call or, you know, some aberrant outlier type type of behavior. Um, aside from personalization, uh, I, I think that one of the things I'm excited to see is how betting and betting like products can enhance other uh, forms of competitive entertainment. I mentioned uh mentioned Players Lounge, which allows you to do this in video games. I'm invested in a company that uh, allows you to play sort of brain games, cerebral games for money. Uh, I do Seinfeld trivia and South Park trivia pretty frequently and and, and fare pretty well on those. Uh, they have real money crossword contests, real money family feud, uh, other types of games like that. So I think that is, uh, you know, that that is all very interesting. And, and then I think, you know, a lot of the innovation is going to be a bit more subtle, but in minimizing the frictions that currently stand between someone who wants to place a bet and actually succeeds in doing so. And, and those frictions exist in all sorts of uh, manifestations on, on the back end and front end. I think you'll see a lot of those those frictions come down and uh, you'll see the, the betting experience become much more seamless. Finally, the thing I'm most interested to see how it plays out Almost every operator and every media company and a million different startups are working right now on at least trying some sort of single screen betting experience on a connected TV or on mobile where you're watching the game. And then from the same screen, you can add a video chat with your friends. You can buy the jersey that the player is wearing and you can place your bets all on the same screen. Everyone seems to be working on some form of this. All the operators are contemplating it in, in one variation or another. My current view is that this technology will actually not take off on big screen TVs necessarily. Uh, if you've ever had to enter your password using a Roku remote or an Amazon Prime remote on a TV, you know what an absolute pain it is to interact with your easier, TV but yeah. in the way you do. And for the most part right now, I think when you're watching your game on a big screen TV, 
The best way to enhance that is through a second screen on your mobile phone. But I do think this technology will likely take off for the cohort of people that watch long form streaming video on mobile in the first place. If your mobile device is where you are watching the game, I think it actually makes a ton of sense to be able to bet and interact and do all sorts of things directly within that app. So everyone's going to come out with some sort of watch and bet uh, app or implementation. And I, I'm very interested to see which are and are not successful. I've always kind of wanted to see a real time chart of the price of something happening. So, you know, like the midterms is coming up, you know, as I'm watching CNN, I'd love to see like a real time chart, you know, the Republicans or Democrats going to take the house. And, you know, I'd love that if I was watching, a, a, you know, my my team's Northwestern, you know, it'd be trading very low this season. But uh, I'd love during the game to just see the price change and have a little chart in the, the lower left. I absolutely screen. would love uh, even on my big screen TV to see a. A, a soft, you know, somewhat translucent overlay, perhaps that's auto synced so cool. to my auto sync to my betting account that figures out what is the outcome I care most about, whether it's specific players scoring a certain number of points or throwing yards, or if it's the, the game itself, uh, and watching the implied probability of, of that change. And I also agree, I think real money prediction markets outside of sports, uh, whether it's on, you know, uh, on political outcomes, uh, there's there's the uh, the site Calshi that now lets you bet on how many people will go through TSA security in the U.S. tomorrow, how many positive COVID tests will there be tomorrow. I absolutely think, and by the way, I think Smarkets has some of the best uh, graphics that they inadvertently end up producing for things like probabilities of political outcomes. You guys got a great great dark mode user interface that, you know, I think makes for some really interesting graphics. I absolutely would expect more people and broadcasts and, and media uh, to start overlaying implied probabilities as derived by betting markets. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, it's cool stuff. Before we hop, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Ooh, man, that's tough. Um, for a long time, it was always a dream to rush the field after a major Division I college football game. I went to a college that did not have such football games, so that was a bit <laughs> out of reach. But I did finally uh, get to do that at, at an LSU-Alabama game down in Baton Rouge, and that was an awesome, awesome experience. Um, I think when I grow up, I, I, I love to cook. I love to eat. I would love to own a small, maybe an Italian restaurant not too many tables where I set the menu, I'm the head chef, I come out every night, I talk to all the different guests, I comp the meals of anyone who uh, seems to be pretty nice, and uh, I'm always you know, putting new things on the menu, going to the market in the morning to pick out the best ingredients, and really you know, putting my whole self into, uh, in, into a menu of, of great food that I get to cook up and, and, and serve to people, and you know, enjoy a, a nice conversation or glass of wine around. I think uh, I think something like that uh, is is what I would love to eventually find my way to. Like 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 Artie Bucco from Sopranos. <laughs> I don't know if slightly he's different. One of shows. <laughs> yes, uh, slightly different from anything Sopranos related. Uh, but I, I do think just the appeal of owning a small restaurant, making the menu, changing it up each day, interacting with nice. all the customers who are hopefully enjoying it and uh, generally being a far distance away from uh, constant email, Slack messages, text messages and the like. Uh, that sounds like uh, paradise for me, especially if you could add in maybe a nice view, a nice water view or something like that. Uh, that, that would be great. 
That sounds eminently doable. So uh, I, I, I'm very optimistic you'll be able to do that one day in your life. I, I, was, so, I was super lucky to rush the field in 2001. Northwestern beat Michigan 54 to 51, which is one of the craziest football games I've ever seen on TV or in person. And it was, it was fun. It was fun. I, I'm awesome. glad you got to do it, even though, even though it wasn't. Who's your team? Who's your D1 team? Uh, I don't. Uh, Michigan is, is no, my D1 team. Oh, I went to I went to UPenn, so Ivy League is not oh. even they're D one double A or whatever. I don't even know. Yeah, they have they have D one wrestling. They're pretty good at wrestling. They have a good they, wrestler I every once in a while. Their debate team is probably better than most of their athletic teams, frankly. <laughs> but uh, yes, fair enough. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Lloyd. I really enjoyed your perspective and uh, it, was, it was great to have you on. Thanks a lot, Jason. 